Hello and welcome to another episode of Quick Looks from the Long View. This is episode 26. It's being recorded on Thursday, the 13th of April, 2017. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, so go and check out all that they have to offer at Dicetower.com. There is a huge number of sister podcasts in the network, and of course, all of the news and reviews from Tom and Z and Eric and the rest of the gang. So go check them out. The Longview is also generously sponsored by GameSurplus.com. Go and check out GameSurplus.com for all of your board gaming needs. No matter where you are, they have a wonderful selection of board games. They offer free shipping at uh, any order that is over $90. Um, They offer a discount on the newest, greatest uh, game from Albin Yard, Tramways. Uh, If you mention the Longview in your order, you get $10 off. So that's basically free shipping, people. So go check out GameSurplus.com. They have an ever-growing selection of imports and hard-to-find games, as well as all of the latest and greatest. So, go find out why GameSurplus.com is my first choice whenever I'm looking to buy a board game and see what makes them so special. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View and Quick Looks, and I'm pleased today, uh, once again, to be joined by my co-host, Lloyd Keller. Uh, Lloyd, uh, I was wondering, since we're this close to Easter, whether or not you could say hello, uh, like the, uh, the, the little kids in the old Cadbury egg commercial, for those of us old enough to remember that. Thank you for listening, Bok Bok. <laughs> and I think that's about the extent of it. That was it. Huh? That was it. That, that was, was it. That's what that I was, was waiting the whole, for. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Lloyd and I are sitting out here on my porch drinking coffee. It is... Um, a relatively nice day here in Pennsylvania, and so uh, we're enjoying the weather. It's a little bit uh, chilly, so we got our cups of coffee going here. Uh, so if you hear any bird sounds or wind blowing or anything of that nature, uh, no, you're not uh, losing your mind. We are recording outside today, so we're going to see how this goes. Um, thought it would be a, a nice change of pace for the two of us, so... Uh, In this week's uh, episode of Quick Looks, we're going to be taking a look at two games. We're looking at a brand new title uh, from Stronghold Games that came out uh, at Essen, which is called uh, Fog of War by Jeff Engelstein. And we're also going to be looking at a title from Tasty Minstrel Games, Amon Ray. This is an older game that has received a reprint with Tasty Minstrel. So the game is now widely available once again, and thank goodness for that. Spoiler alert. So... Uh, Lloyd, uh, why don't we dive in a little bit uh, and take a look after this brief moment at The Fog of War. So first up is Fog of War from Stronghold Games, designed by Jeff Engelstein. This is a really interesting take on the war game. Um, It is basically... I would call it an operational, certainly, level game because the game basically deals with operations in the, uh, you know, different theaters and, and uh, uh, locations and countries uh, around the world um, in the Second World War, primarily focused on the European theater, um, a little bit, uh, you know, North Africa, things of that nature. Uh, but we, we are, we're not looking at uh, Japan, we're not looking at the Pacific. Nope. Um, the United States, of course, is involved as well uh, in the game. Um, and so, so this is a, a very, very interesting take uh, on the sort of genre of a sort of World War II game. So The Fog of War is really interesting because basically what it is, it's a card game. And it involves a very, very interesting mechanism that uh, Jeff Engelstein has come up with, which is what, what's called the operations wheel. And so basically what happens is you are going to be placing cards uh, face down on uh, the slots of this operation wheel. And basically it is a uh, six kind of space wheel. And you can almost think of it as a rondelle. And what's going to happen is you can place cards on a spot um, that corresponds to the round that you are currently in. And then it, basically the it's going to kind of rotate Um, as you move through the different rounds of the game, making the operation uh, more and more ready to launch. Um, When you plan an operation, you're going to put down a card that's going to show a location. Um, You're going to put down some cards that might have some military strength. And so basically you have sea strength, uh, which of course is only useful in, you know, the areas that would be affected by naval kind of warfare. Uh, And then you have cards that have like tanks on them, okay? And these are the cards that you're going to be using for sort of your land strength. And some of the cards are 
are going to have both. You can, you know, so you can kind of use them as either or. And so you're going to place that, uh, those cards down. And then every round thereafter, as this operations wheel rotates, um, it's going to uh, make those operations closer and closer to being ready to launch. Now, you can't launch an operation on the round that you plan it, and you can't launch an operation on the following round, but every round after that, you can. If you launch an operation too early, however, you're going to be giving a slight advantage to your opponent, okay, the defender, who's going to basically have um, some free strength added to their defense because you sort of launched before or um, you were fully prepared and ready for this operation. Also, during uh, the game, you're going to have the opportunity to um, add cards to that operation. So just because you originally seeded the operation with you know two cards, say, it doesn't mean that you can't add cards later in later rounds. As a matter of fact, you can make quite a large stack of cards in an operation wheel section and um, you know you're going to kind of wait for it to come to fruition and then you're going to launch the operation so the operation might be to take over a sea zone or it might be to take over a country um, either a, a country that starts off neutral or um, you know a, a piece of territory that your opponent is controlling um, the opponent meanwhile has their own operation wheel and they're going to be planning nasty things against you in the same way that you're planning nasty things against them uh, added to this is some card play on the main board. The main board is divided up into uh, regions uh, that correspond roughly to countries or you know different kind of regional areas that were known uh, at the time of the Second World War. And you're going to be able to uh, add some cards to those locations, um, which is going to represent your defensive posture in that location or that region. So um, that's going to enable you to defend yourself if you think that someone is going to be building up an operation, say, you know, um, they're, they're going to try to go into France um, because they're adjacent to it. Um, and you think, OK, I think they're going to try and you know, plan a strike into France. You might start beefing up your defense of France if you, um, you know, currently are holding France by placing cards in there. Your opponent sees that. Um, and so then they kind of have to think, OK, how much strength is in there and, you know, blah, 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 because the cards that you play are going to be face down. Um, you don't get to see all the cards that are in there. So when an operation finally launches, you're going to reveal the cards that were in the operation wheel stack, and you're going to show the location that you were attacking, and then you're going to kind of uh, set all your cards out so you can kind of calculate the strength of the attack. The defender, meanwhile, is going to look at uh, that section of the board, and if they've put any defensive cards there, or if there's any innate sort of native defensive cards that are there, um, you know, in the event of a neutral country, um, you're going to kind of take those and you're going to compare. And depending on the strength of the attack, uh, depending on uh, the strength of the defense and uh, how much greater the attack was than the defense in a kind of an old school kind of a way, kind of felt to me, like old, old war game. Would you yeah, agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You are going to then be able to remove uh, cards and strength points until such time as hopefully you can take over that territory. Um, if the um, uh, strength is, is basically uh, equal, then you're going to get involved in what's called a quagmire, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, very frustrating, but a it lot is. of fun. Basically, what that means is no one has outright won the engagement, and therefore, um, on every turn, each player is going to have the opportunity to try to add cards to that quagmire um, in an attempt to win the quagmire. And the quagmire is going to be assessed at the end of the turn of the person who initiated the conflict, so the defender will get a chance to play a card, the attacker will get a chance to play a card, then you're going to resolve. And that quagmire could go on forever. It could go on for a long time. Um, or you can just kind of you know concede the battle and say, okay, whatever, I'm out of here. Um, because cards that are tied up in your quagmire, uh, you know, you're not going to be getting uh, those cards back. Um, because there is a uh, kind of a part of the game where you're going to be able to recoup some cards, you're going to be able to uh, gain new cards from your deck, um, you're going to be able to gain new cards if you're the allies, for example, um, as the United States enters the war. You know, there's more cards are going to flood into your deck of possible cards etc. So at its heart, it is an operational level game with a huge amount of bluffing, mm -hmm. which is what is so fun. I mean, even some of the cards that you place in those operational stacks can be bluffing cards that have no value whatsoever, but I just see that you've added another card there, and you're like, dang it, man. All right, I guess I'm going to have to add this card. I got this, this nice two-tank card, 
I want to put it in my operation wheel because I want to try and take over the Baltics, but um, he just put another card there, and I think he's going for France, so dang it, I'm going to have to put it in defense of France. Meanwhile, I'm building this straw army of low-powered cards, bluff cards, and I'm just trying to sap you of your resources because in actuality, the other operation on my wheel, which is one space back from the one you're worried about, is an actual operation. I'm going to try to take over the North Atlantic and, and cut off your supply lines. And so there's all kinds of plays like that that are very heavy on the sort of outthinking, the bluffing. Uh, I really enjoy that aspect of the game because it reminds me of actual history. You know, Patton was basically deployed, um, you know, to France, as I recall, as a bluff, um, you know, to, to make them think that the Allies were going to invade from the south when in actuality they were going to invade from uh, the north uh, via England and a sea invasion from Normandy. So, you know, there's all these kinds of historical tie-ins to this kind of... Uh, this kind of thing, uh, this larger war, this war of strategy, but also war of disinformation, of bluffing, of feint and counter move. Uh, and, and, you know, the opponents, uh, you know, everybody is not always blind. You also get the ability to take intelligence actions, right? Mm-hmm. So intelligence actions are actions that you can take where you get a chance to peek, so you can take a peek at, say, um, some cards on an operation wheel, or you can take a peek at what somebody is defending a region with. And you're not going to get all of the information, but you're going to get some of the information. And, you know, it, it could end up being very useful to you as you decide when is going to be to your best advantage to launch your operation or how heavily you have to defend something. Um, these are the things that, to me, make this game... Very interesting, very engaging. There is, I would say, low rules overhead for a game of this kind. You know, this is basically, in my mind, it's a war game. I'm sure people will argue that point as they always do. But in my mind, this is definitely a war game. Um, It deals with supply lines. It deals with production capacity. It deals with, uh, you know, territories, um, you know, different win conditions, uh, and the card play is all about managing the resources that you have in order to try to you know, advance your plans on the world stage. So to me, this is definitely a war game. Um, what are your thoughts about this, Lloyd? Uh, you know, when, you, when you think about war games, because we've played some, uh, and you think about like a standard kind of like a Euro game or maybe a combo game like Twilight Struggle or something, like where would you place this? That's interesting because I'm not I'm not entirely sure where to place this. When we started playing Fog of War, um, of course I started thinking because of the way that 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 you called a rondelle or windrose or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. The way the operations wheel worked reminded me a lot of Macau. Yeah. Yeah. And yet the whole bluffing and the way you don't actually get to see. Um, what units are being put in reminded me a little bit of some of like the block war games yes. where you put your units out, but your opponent can't see what you are putting out because the block's facing you until it's engaged. Right. So it, it's got so many different elements. Um, I would not compare this, I think, to Twilight Struggle. Mm-mm. Yeah, not, we don't really have events here. There's, you know? there's no events. This is purely... The operations, it's purely the bluffing. It's purely trying to, like you said, almost use misinformation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to try and outthink your opponent. And I don't know. I mean, I guess in that way, I mean, there there is a lot of of heavy strategy. Yes, I, I would agree. I think this is definitely a strategic game for sure. Um, there, there's not much by way of tactics in this, no, like because not really. you know you don't have like well different units do different things, and I'm going to yeah. bring a you know a uh, uh, a bomber squadron over here to counter uh, you know this, and I'm going to send a tank battalion here. I mean, like all the cards kind of are generic, you know. Yeah, they really um, are. They they just have numbers on them. 
And so it's really not important, you know, when you're looking at the cards, like, is that supposed to be a tank? Is that supposed to be infantry? Kind of doesn't matter. It's just strength points, right? So mm-hmm. you're really thinking about the strategy that you're trying to pull off. Um, because one of the interesting things about the game is that the win conditions are pretty straightforward, as you would expect uh, for the Allies. Okay, you basically have to, um, you know, uh, sack Germany. Okay, right. you got to get into Germany and and uh, take it over and control it. But the Germans have a very interesting kind of win condition, whereby they're going to be dealt a, um, a two cards uh, from a, a deck of locations, and those locations are known to the Allied player. There's, I think there's like seven or eight of them, or something like that and if the germans control those two locations at the end of the game and germany has not been occupied the germans win yeah irregardless because they you know uh, met that strategic goal so as the allied player you're also spending a lot of time trying to figure out which two cards does the german player have yeah because if i can't win the game outright and it comes down to victory points um it's going to be really difficult for the German player to win because you start off very explosively, just like it, it happened in the original um, you know, situation in World War II. Uh, Germany starts off with a huge deck of cards that are available for them to use mm-hmm. and uh, very powerful cards, and, uh, but they don't really get an influx of, of much of anything new, whereas the Allies kind of start off uh, a little bit hampered, a little bit slowly, but as they start to receive more cards at different points in the game representing when different countries entered the conflict on the Allied side, uh, their options grow. Mm -hmm. And so Germany is going to get squeezed. Like, you're going to start off feeling, you know, like a a world beater, uh, just like I'm sure Germany did uh, early in the war. But then as the the war goes on, you're going to be just holding on. Uh, as the Allies kind of crush in around you. And so for Germany to have that win condition where, hey, as long as I can hold my home mm-hmm. and these two other regions, I got a shot at winning. Yeah, uh, I think that's a really interesting design choice and something that I really enjoyed about the game. Yeah, I appreciated that too. And uh, like you said, the Allied player, they're fully aware of like the seven or eight possible right. mm-hmm. regions. Yep. So... This is again where this the, uh, I love the bluffing in this because mm-hmm. I might try and redirect you intentionally to a different area of the board. I think and you did that to me. I, I probably did. <laughs> and you know, I'm I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that in the latter half of the game, I'm going to be able to make a big push then. Right for those regions. For yeah. those regions that I really want to occupy and hope that you haven't already taken them over and I'm going to have to devote even more forces to try and squeeze back control i mean it's yeah there's a nice little tug of war as far as that goes yes yeah and a lot of planning a lot of planning planning. and so you know to me this game offered something very new in in the sort of wargaming genre because what it did i think uh very very well and I'm not a huge war gamer, so there might be other war games out there that do this, and you know, people have to forgive me if this is true. Uh, I'm sorry if this is false, but uh, I really haven't run into a game that delves into the sort of operational planning and the espionage aspect mm-hmm. of war quite like this one does. You know, I've run into other games where you know they have a sort of intelligence phase, um, and you know that that can be an important part of the game, but not to the same extent that this can. And the thing about it that's really juicy is is you only have so much currency, if you want to think of it that way, to spend on intelligence. Yeah. And when you take your production uh, at the end of every round, you can spend your production on buying cards. Mm-hmm. Which is crucial. You gotta have cards. Okay, gotta have cards. Um, But then you can also use it to try to up your production. Okay, which Mm -hmm. is kind of like building factories, if you want to think of it that way. Um, Or you can spend them on intelligence points and trying to figure out how many intelligence points do I need, um, how many do I think I'm going to use is really, really a tough decision in this game because intelligence can make or break uh, a certain operation. It can let you know uh, if the German player is bluffing about Poland being an endgame card because maybe they've got a, you know, uh, a couple bluffs in there. And they have like a ship, you know, right. <laughs> like a boat. You know, we I, sent a U-boat. I see that. right. We sent a U-boat. So it's like I look at it and I think, okay, there's three cards there. And, uh, hmm, you know, it, maybe that's one of his endgames. So I start planning an operation to go and take Poland from you. 
when in actuality you got a bluff, you got a boat, and you got like you know a, a one strength card in there, and you really don't care about Poland, but you've made me believe that you care about Poland. So uh, if I do some espionage actions and discover that bluff card in there, oh well, okay, probably this is not really his objective. He's just messing with me, and so. That's a part of the game and a sort of an economy or a currency of the game, intelligence, that is really, really crucial. Um, and I also like the fact that the uh, defensive player has the opportunity to spend intelligence points to block you. Yes. So, you know, I send my spies out to try and uh, prize some information from the locals. And, you know, you have your own people who go out and, you know, try to take out my spies. Uh, you know, it's kind of what I envision in my head. You know, yeah. your spies have discovered my spies and uh, have, you know, uh, uh, cleaned them up, gotten rid of them, right? Yeah. Um, and so I've spent my intelligence points, but I got nothing for it, you know? And that can be really frustrating, don't get me wrong, but. I also feel it's thematic, you know? I mean, lots of people were trying to get information, but not everybody was successful. Or they were given misinformation, you Mm -hmm. know? Because you might have that stack that I was talking about with a bluff, a ship, and a troop card. If I pull that troop card, it's like, well, it's not a very strong troop card, but it's a troop card. Yep. So I'll bet you that's probably the worst one he has in there. And he probably has a two and a three in there. And, oh, man, I got to really, you know, gear up to go after Poland when I just saw the wrong thing. You know, I didn't see what I really needed to see. And so that, to me, also makes it really, really interesting. So uh, for me, as a two-player war game, the thing I really like about this game is it plays in a very reasonable amount of time. Uh, BGG says 90 to 120 minutes, and I'd say that's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. Your first game will probably take you a little over two hours uh, with teaching and all that. Um, you know, There are definitely some complexities in the game as far as supply lines go and things of that nature, but they're nothing that's really difficult. It's just you have to kind of keep them in mind. Um, you know, the, the way production works is very interesting. Um, you kind of get the lower value. You know, so I might have the potential to have all of this fantastic production, but if I don't have the population, then I get the lower value. And yeah. so I need sometimes, you know, the population in order to uh, maximize my industry. And so there's all these interesting kind of pieces and bits to this game um, that I really, really enjoy. So uh, I think it's accessible. I think it's relatively easy to teach, especially for like a war game kind of a game. Uh, and I think it's going to give you that feel in a very reasonable time frame. A lot of the war games that you know I've played are four to eight hour affairs. And so something that plays in like two hours, I think, is great because it gives me the chance to bring it out uh, on game night more and more often. So um, that's kind of you know what I think about this one. Uh, what about you, Lloyd? I really enjoyed this one as well, and I think, you know, this is almost a good medium weight, almost introductory kind of war game mm-hmm, for someone mm-hmm. that's not ready to go full on and play, you know, this is the game we're going to play all day long. Right, right. This is the single war game, and it's going to take us, like you said, four to eight hours. I think this is a good medium weight one with simple enough rules and a few things you're going to have to remember, but, you know... Right. Over the rounds, it becomes more instantaneous, and you remember the little Mm -hmm. things with your production. Um, So I really enjoy this one as well, and I just I love the bluffing aspect of it and the way that that operations wheel works because it's a different feel as far as trying to plan things out in advance. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and I love the sort of uh, almost game of chicken with the rotation of the operations wheel because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get to a point where it's like, okay, even though I'm giving my defender, uh, this operation is going to be a minus one strength because I'm launching it early. Uh, he's only got two cards in that region, and you know what? I'm going to spring it early. Or, you know, you want to play it safe, and so you start to, you know, wait, and you're letting it build up, and you get to a point where you get a bonus to your strength by waiting uh, even longer. Um, and then it's like, okay, cool, you know, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. But then that gives your opponent more time to, to, to look and yeah. say, all right, well, I'm going to start dumping some cards in here. And you're like, dang it, you know, maybe I waited too long. <laughs> and, you know, then, of course, there's also uh, the possibility that you could plan an operation, and if you don't launch the operation within a certain time limit, it just goes away. Yeah, Like, you know, the time has passed for that operation. So uh, the planning, the, st- the, the strategic nature of the game is what I 
really, really enjoy, along with the sort of novel uh, mechanisms that are in here um, yeah. for the espionage and the pro- the production's not super new, but the the espionage to me, uh, the intelligence aspect and the operations wheel uh, is just amazing. So, um, okay, so that's the that's the positive uh, things that we have to say about the fog of war. Um, I have a couple of things that I'm not super fond of um, that I got to talk about. Um, I think this is a rare example of a game that needs a bigger board because the board is kind of bordered, almost Monopoly style. Uh, Don't kill me for saying that, Jeff. Um, (laughs) With these little spaces, you know, almost like the properties as you go around the Monopoly board, right? Um, And and the spaces are exactly the size of the cards that you're going to put. And so as, as the game progresses... Like, it's impossible to keep the cards in these little boxes, and they're, like, rotated and turned. It's like, was that card in this box or that box? Like, I personally just wish that the uh, board was a little bit bigger to give a little bit more wiggle room on those card spaces. There's a lot of them, so I understand that, you know, there, there isn't a whole lot that can be done without making it a monster board or maybe a two-part board or something like that. But the fact that everything is that tight, to me, really makes it very difficult to try and, you know, put out the cards. Or you'll put out the cards on the space, but the, it kind of covers the, the name of the space. You're like, all right, where are those cards? Is that Libya? Is that Turkey? But where is that? And so you're kind of like poking them and moving them, yeah, and then you, you poke them, and then the it way. moves the other ones. And I, I don't know. I know it sounds, you know, totally petty, but to me, it's not... Because it affects gameplay. You know, to me, it's it's something that is annoying enough that I'm just like, look, you know, I just wish this board was a little bit bigger. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to have to fight with the components while I'm playing the game. Because the central map of the game, which kind of shows the world, uh, no problems there. I don't have any problems with that. Um, you know, it's very clear. It's very concise. But the, the the area where you're playing your cards is a bit of a pain. So uh, that I'm not super-duper happy with. Um, other than that, I mean, you know, the card quality, the, um, you know, tokens that come with the game, I don't really have any problem with the components at all. And I don't really have a problem with the board. I mean, the Victory Point track is very functional. The Industry track is very functional. There's some good information on that board. Um, and, you know, I, I think it... It's very well done, except I just wish it was bigger. So that's really my only complaint about the game. Are there any uh, things about the game, either in the gameplay or the components, that bugged you? Not really. And, you know, I had smaller hands, so I didn't have a problem with the... You <laughs> okay, know, Donald. The, the, yeah, thanks. <laughs> with, you know, the, like, the, the squishiness of the cards. The squishiness. <laughs> the squishiness. Nice. They're all mashed up together. No, I, I didn't have too much of a problem with that. But I do agree that when you're trying to find a region... Right. And the cards are stacked on top of the name, then yes, you do. You have to move them out of the way. You kind of have to look and and without flipping them over. Mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to go. Okay, this is the region I'm looking for. All right, right I'm going right. to devote cards here. And so yeah, and that kind of can you know I, yeah I, I don't know mm, yeah it just left a little. That was the only thing that it, it was kind of a low grade annoyance right like all the time because really the whole game is the operations wheel and those stacks of cards. Yep. And so it's kind of like, you know, I really need to be able to access them in a way that's not quite so uh, constrained or tight. So, you know, just on a physical standpoint. Well, you know, I mean, if that's our worst complaint about the game, then I guess uh, it's a good one. And uh, BGG would seem to agree. It's got a uh, a rating right now of 7.8, which is extremely good. Uh, It is a game that uh, I hope continues to be a slow burn for Stronghold. Um, It is very different from uh, most of Jeff Engelstein's other games, which usually seem to involve space and blowing things up. Um, (laughs) This is, or the future and blowing things up, you know, like Ares, uh, you know, the Ares Project. You know, just it's it's always futuristic blowing things up. This is historical blowing things up. So I I really have uh, enjoyed this. It's a departure for him. Uh, 
I was excited to see uh, the game once I played it uh, in Stronghold's catalog. I think it's a, a good stepping off point for them in case they're thinking about doing some more war games in the future or war gamerly things. I think this would be a, a great sort of a flagship title. So I do see it doesn't have a ton of ratings or a ton of comments as of the recording of this episode. And, uh, you know, I worry that that might mean that this has flown under a lot of people's radar and that they haven't really. Uh, checked it out, either because they haven't heard of it or because they think, you know, oh, you know, Jeff Engelstein, uh, you know, he doesn't do war games. Um, you know, and I think that would be a, a disservice, you know. Um, Chad Jensen is a war game designer who gave us Dominant Species. Um, now, some people would say, oh, well, it's just a war game. Well, not real. I mean, it kind of, it's an area majority game, and it's extremely clever and very different from the other games that he's designed. So just because you might have a reputation as a guy who, oh, you're the Space Cadets guy, you know. Um, this is, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't design in other veins. Uh, there's lots of designers that have proved that. And I think this is a step for uh, Jeff Engelstein, uh, once again, kind of showing uh, some range uh, in his abilities as a designer. So if you've been hesitant about this one because you're thinking, never heard of Engelstein in, in a war game, uh, or if you just haven't heard of it before you should definitely check it out give it a chance and give it a good look-see because it is a game that uh, i've been very happy with and am always happy to pick up when i've got the opportunity to play a two-player game lloyd do you have any closing thoughts i would just echo the same thing this is a great little war game and i'm willing to play this anytime because i love trying to bluff you <laughs> to see if it works and yeah sometimes it doesn't but yeah but I'm getting better at it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So uh, that's our review, and those are our thoughts about The Fog of War by Jeff Engelstein, uh, released and printed by Stronghold Games. Next game up that we have is a new release by Tasty Minstrel Games. Uh, this is a game that many people have heard of uh, over the years. Uh, it is a classic game. Uh, designed by Reiner Knizia. It's called Amon Ray. Um, this is a game that was kind of a little bit of a grail game for a while. Uh, it was originally released in 2003, so this game's been around. Mm -hmm. um, and it's rated a 7.4. Uh, on the BGG scale, and I think I know why it's rated a 7.4, which is a decent score, don't get me wrong, especially for an old game, but I think this game actually would be rated higher were certain conditions met, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. The game is for three to five players. It plays in about 90 minutes. I'd say that's true. And the um, upgraded kind of version of Amon Ray, uh, rele uh, released by Tasty Minstrel, is noteworthy for a few things. Um, it is a beautiful production. Uh, the board is larger, I believe, uh, from my memory. I played, I used to own the original edition, uh, and then I sold it for a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm really happy to have this new edition. Uh, the board uh, definitely feels much larger to me. There's more room. Um, the uh, way the bidding and the auction works, uh, there are actual cards um, that uh, I, I really enjoy that you're placing your, your workers on. You have these wonderful little walk-like-an-Egyptian little meeples <laughs> uh, that you place out on the cards to uh, bid for the different regions during the game. Uh, the pyramids are lovely. They're almost that kind of uh, clay kind of feeling to them. Yeah. And the bricks uh, that you use to build your pyramids are the same kind of material. They're kind of you know good and heavy. They, they have some heft to them, and they kind of have that stone feel to them. Um, and you know the rest of the game uh, components are very nice. The board is ridiculously thick. It's like a it's like a GMT kind of a board. Um, you know, very thick, very sturdy, very heavy, um, very functional. There's an area on the board for you to put uh, all of the pyramid pieces and the stone, and an area for all the farmers, and an area for the cards. And uh, you know, everything is kind of laid out on the board really, really nicely. Um, the uh, little meeples that you get, like I said, are definitely an upgrade. I, I enjoy those guys quite a bit. Um, and and it's, it's a fascinating game because it reminds me a little bit of Brass. Now, for those who are kind of scratching their head at that, um, Brass has uh, something very unique about it, which is in the middle of the game, there's kind of like a board reset 
where everything that you've kind of built uh, that is of a certain technology level goes away. Uh, the, the canals that you you know built go away as they give uh, give way to rail development and rail systems and uh, newer industries, modern uh, industries, and automation factories and things of that nature. Right? Uh, this game kind of does that in a way, at least in my mind, because uh, you kind of play through the game. And then uh, everything that you've kind of done in the region, there's like a reset in between the ages in the game. And um, the pyramids stay. You know, these giant monuments stay. But everything else kind of goes away. Um, So your control of that region goes away. Your uh, farmers, you know, they, they have farmed, they have lived their lives, and they are now gone, right? And so all that's left from this, you know, previous kingdom, this dynasty, this era, are these monuments that have been left behind. And when you go and work on um, the next kind of uh, age of the game, then those are all up for grabs. So I might have built these amazing pyramids and really uh, done wonderful things, but I, if I don't get that again, then I've kind of just set up for somebody else, you know, yeah. which, is, which is a very interesting thing in a game to where your efforts can eventually pay off for someone else. Yeah. Um, and that's a really uncomfortable feeling. It's, it's you know, <laughs> you really don't want that to happen. So it's it's kind of it's got a unique feel to it for that reason I think um, that reset really kind of makes you think and it, it gives you uh, some food for thought because there are scoring opportunities at the end of the game based on the number of pyramids that um, uh, you know you have built. Um, you're going to gain points uh, equal to the fewest number of pyramids you have in your least pyramid populated region. So if I have the ability to get all of my regions up to two or three pyramids apiece, then I'm in great shape. And if I manage to take over uh, some regions that you had built two pyramids on in previous rounds, well, thank you very much. Exactly. Because you have now guided me towards uh, my victory there, right? So that's a really interesting dynamic. Um, So uh, this is uh, a game just for general flow. Uh, What you're going to be doing is you're going to be bidding uh, on a set of regions, and the regions that are available are going to vary by the number of players. And you're going to be doing an auction whereby you must beat a bid that another player has placed, or you have to go to another place where no one has yet gone. If you do beat someone, they kind of effectively get kicked out of that region, and they must go somewhere else. They either have to go somewhere where no one else is, or they have to go and beat the bid of another player at another location. They can't just simply go to the same location, although there are cards that will let you do that. Um, Once you have done the auction and everybody has a region that they have claimed, everybody's going to get one, okay? It's just a matter of how much you're going to pay. Then we're going to go through a phase where you're going to have the ability to buy things. So you're going to have the ability to buy cards. Um, The number of cards that you can buy can be affected by your regions that you control. Uh, You're going to have the ability to buy stone uh, in order to build pyramids. And you're going to have the ability to buy farmers okay, to to produce uh, money for you at the end of the round. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to make an offering to the god Amun-Re. And the offering is uh, one of the many uses of money in this game, right? Because you need money to buy the stone, you need money to buy the cards, you need money to buy the farmers, uh, but you also need money to make an offering. The combined value of the offering to Amun-Re is going to determine what yields you get from your farmers, in effect. It's also going to determine whether or not uh, certain locations on the board that have a caravan symbol are going to pay off or not. If the offering to Amun-Re is low, then those are going to pay out. If the offering is high, those are not going to pay out at all. And the people who have those regions are kind of out of luck. Often these regions with camels either have limited farmers or no farmers. And so, therefore, um, it's in their best interest to keep the bid low, but it's in everybody else's best interest to keep the bid high, which is another interesting tension point in the game. So once you go through this whole sort of thing and this operation, um, you're, you're going to continue to play uh, your rounds until the game is over. 
Um, one of the interesting things also is uh, there are cards that you can buy. And these cards are going to offer you uh, either one-shot benefits or they're going to offer you end-game scoring opportunities. So, for example, if all the territories that I have claimed during the course of this age are on one side of the Nile or the other, I might score points. Or if all of my territories are close to the Nile, uh, I'm going to score points. If they're all away from the Nile, I'm going to score points. Or, um, you know, I'm going to gain points. There's just all these different kind of scoring cards that are available. My mind is blanking on some of the others. But uh, those are there. Um, And so that's going to give you something to shoot for. It's going to give you a strategy to look at. Like, this is what I want to try to accomplish either in this age or the next age. So that's kind of neat. You have uh, cards that will add farms. So um, they kind of like add a farmer. Uh, even if there isn't space for one, you get to plop one down. There are cards that are going to increase the yield of your farms in a region. So instead of getting, uh, say, $2 or $3 per farmer, you might be able to get 3 or $4 per farmer. So that's pretty sweet. Um, and then there are cards that affect that bid to Amon Ray. Um, that will either raise or lower the score by three. Um, And that can be really crucial to play because all the cards have the same back. So when people go and put out a bid, if Lloyd's got three cards in his hand, he's either putting out three money cards or he might be putting out... Uh, you know, uh, just one money card and, a, you know, one of those plus or minus three kind of cards or something like that. Uh, there's also kind of bluff cards that you can put out. Yeah. So the card play is another really interesting part of the game. Um, at the end of the game, uh, there's going to be an intermediate game scoring uh, where you're going to score for your pyramids and, and whatnot and temples that are pre-printed on the board. And then there's going to be a final end game scoring as well. So whoever has the most points wins. All right, awesome sauce. So... Why is this game uh, a game that has lasted so long, and why did I say that I think I can understand why it's only, quote-unquote, rated a 7.4? Well, uh, first of all, this is kind of a game that I would think of as sort of from the golden age of Kinesia designs. I mean, this is one of his better designs. But having played this game, I will tell you, it is listed as a game for three to five players. Um I, after playing this game once three players, I don't think I will ever play at three player again. Um, a lot of the excitement and tension in the game is totally dependent on the number of players. So I think the best at this game is probably five, four. I will definitely play. It's got some good tension in it. We played it, I think, a four player game. Yeah, we did. Um, but I've played a three player and it was kind of like, eh, you know, it was pleasant. And this is not a game that is designed to be pleasant. This is a game that is designed to kick you in the teeth and, you know, then hear someone laugh at you about it. You know, that, that's kind of what this game is. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, the first time I played this game was at uh, ConCon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we played this game, and uh, I got completely destroyed. I don't know who I was playing with. It was either Matt or Joe Gola. Um, who taught? Joe, it might have been Joe Gola who taught me the game, and uh, I was sour grapes about this one at the time. Man, I was just like, this game is balls. <laughs> I hated it, uh, and then I played it again, and I was like, okay, all right, I kind of like it. And then I played it again, I was like, all right, this is really good. Um, and, and so I ended up getting it into my collection, but I only got it played a few times because I really think this game would be rated. At a seven, 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 eight, or maybe even uh, you know a little better than that, if it was only ever played with five players, um, I, I really don't know that this game plays at its best with three. Um, the competition just isn't there. Um, it's a little too wide open. The money flows a little too freely in a three-player game. Yeah, it does. Um, whereas in that five-player game, it's just a knife fight. Like every single thing that everybody does hurts. And so it's a game that has an incredible amount of tension at a high player count. At a low player count, not as much. So uh, sorry to Tasty Minstrel, sorry to Reiner Knizia, but that's my uh, opinion. I don't think you should play this with three. I think you should play it with four or five. And I don't know that that's any great secret. Um, you know, people who've played this game before, I've heard say the same thing. Uh, it, it has been around for a while, and I think people kind of generally acknowledge that. Uh, but I think it bears repeating now that it's available again. You know, don't get this game. You know, there there is no two-player version of this game that I'm aware of. <laughs> no. And it's not all that good with three. With four, it's good. With five, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would say if you have a group that can support a four- or five-player game, on a fairly regular basis, and it's pretty quick. I mean, 
uh, we've played this in an hour. You yeah, know? we have. I mean, it's not, you know, as long as you're not going to sit there and, and try to crunch math every second of the game, um, you, you can play this one pretty quickly. And it's very satisfying. It's it's a really interesting game. Um, but definitely play it with the four or five player count. Um, Lloyd, do you have any thoughts about this one? Yeah, I enjoy this one actually kind of for the meanness factor of it because mm-hmm. there is, like you said, so much in this game where something's going to happen and it's really unpleasant for me and you're just over there grinning because yeah. it's it's working in your favor. And uh, I, I love the auction mechanic of the game, mm-hmm. the way you have to go to another region. And sometimes, like you said, if if you're so focused on building up a region yourself, mm-hmm. soon as somebody else gets in there, even if you've already claimed a region now, that turn, you're like, oh, there we go. Like, I can't... I can't get that back now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so so much meanness to it that I really enjoy. And it's it's over relatively fast, so it's not very punishing for a long time. Right, right. And yeah. there's not that tension and that conflict going on longer than it needs to, right. I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, A game like this, if it went on too long, I think you'd start getting some hurt feelings, you know? Yeah. Um, But I think you also described some of the the really tense moments in the game. And this happened the first time I played with Joe Gola. Oh, and by the way, if you have, if you are one of the few people out there who has not read Joe Gola's session report about Amon Ray, if you go to that page and you look down on the sort of session reports, it's like the top one. I think it's got, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of, of thumbs, if not thousands. Um, it's pretty darn hilarious. Um, Joe Gola has contributed two things that have made me laugh out loud hysterically. One is the Amon Ray uh, report, which is fantastic. And the second one is uh, there used to be, and it might still be a member on BGG, who was very famous for taking pictures of games that his girlfriend was holding, uh, who then turned into his fiance, <laughs> yes. and then turned into his lovely wife, and I think her name was Agnes. And so he did a whole geek list of uh, Agnes as a board game holding kind of model, and then all of the people who did it wrong <laughs> and who do terrible jobs at holding board games for pictures. <laughs> and it's one of the funniest things I've read. So uh, kudos to Joe Gola for that. Um, okay, anyway, I digressed. Um, I, you know, I, I would say um, one of the, the great tensions in this game, and this happened when we were playing with Joe, was that auction phase. Because the way it works is usually there's like two or three regions maybe that everybody wants. And then there's one or two that are kind of eh or maybe even somewhat crappy. Okay, uh, There's a great one on there that's like $12 as soon as you win it. But then there's like no space for farms. And yep. it's not going to do you anything for the rest of that age, right? So it's kind of a nice little one-shot kind of infusion, but then it just kind of sits there, and it's it's not very helpful to you, right? Um, and so there are regions that, you know, are less desirable than others, for sure. So what, what has happened to me and what invariably happens in this game is if you don't bid high enough for the region that you really want, what can happen is someone can come in, outbid you. You then have to move. So let's say there's one card that's open because nobody really wants it. There's one region that nobody really wants. So I move to a region that I don't particularly want, but I'm just going to move there to kick somebody else out, okay? Because I don't want to go to the empty one because if I go to the empty one, then there's only one person on each region and you're done. Right. So I'm paying nothing for that region, which is pretty sweet, but... It's a piece of junk, and it's not what I want, and it's not what I need. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to go to this region, and I'm going to I'm going to kick Sarah out. So you put your piece down, and Sarah's like, oh man, I really wanted that. And, you know, you're like, okay, all right, we'll move somewhere else, Sarah. Move somewhere else. And what does Sarah do? She moves to the empty region for zero, and she's like, well, I'll just go here. And you're like, oh, son of a gun, because what I really wanted to do was go back to the region that you kicked me out of originally that I really, really wanted to kick you out of it again, 
But because Sarah went to the other region and said, all right, I'm not going to get in a fight over this. I want to save my money for the offering to Amun Ray. Or maybe she's got a different plan. She goes to the empty region and says, okay, I'll just go here. And now there's only one of you on each region. I'm stuck in a region that I really didn't want. You've got the one I did want. And I didn't have time to get back to kick you out. And now my life is over. So right. <laughs> it's kind of the way that auction works. And it's, it's really, really painful to go through. But you, it's memorable. Yes, it is. You know, you look back at it and you're like, I, I remember that time you did that to me. You know, <laughs> um, you know I, I have a long memory. So, yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting game for many, many reasons. It's one that is well-deserving of its uh, longevity, well-deserving of its rating. I think it's a great design by Reiner Knizia. Uh, it's one that I plan on keeping in my collection because my game group has grown uh, to the point now where I do have enough people that I think it can hit the table more regularly. So uh, it is definitely one that I, I enjoy. And I think Tasty Minstrel did a fantastic job of uh, offering this game to everybody again in a really nice edition with some really nice components and um, a really lovely presentation. So uh, kudos to them for bringing it back in style instead of just bringing it back. Right, exactly. Like you said, the pieces are nice. Those pyramids look Mm -hmm. great. The stone looks great. The walk like an Egyptian meeples. I mean, everything (laughs) about it just is the next level up and makes it not just... A reprint of the old game. It's it's a newer game. Right, right. So uh, you know, good good on them for doing that. So uh, Lloyd, do you have uh, any uh, last thoughts about the game? Maybe anything that you didn't like about the game, or um, something that uh, you wish had been different, or anything of that nature? I didn't like getting kicked out of the region I wanted, but other than that, you know, it's it's a great game, and like I said, it's it's got some meanness to it, but the meanness doesn't last long, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's got that that one Kinesia thing where. You're only going to score the lowest, right? The least, no, yeah. or the least that you have, which does really force you to try and even out. And yeah. I appreciate that about the game because if somebody is not really working too much on their pyramids, yeah, you're not really going to want to try and win those regions later on because you're going to need to put in a whole lot more work, right? To right. keep them up to par with the rest of the regions you might be controlling. So yeah, it just it, it lends itself very nicely to really trying to fight through until the very end there for for really what you want. Fantastic. So uh, I, I think Lloyd and I are in agreement that this is definitely one that, uh, once again, you should take a look at uh, and consider purchasing. Uh, my one caveat would be make sure you got four or five players. Other than that, yes. uh, this is a no-brainer. It's a classic. It's a winner. Uh, it's interesting. It's different. And it's fast. So you can't ask for a whole lot more than that. Uh, the rules overhead is very low. It doesn't take a lot to wrap your mind around. Uh, you know, we're not talking about Tigris and Euphrates here with, well, what's the difference now between internal versus external conflict? You don't have to worry about any of that. It's very straightforward. So um, I think it's a big thumbs up from both uh, Lloyd and I on this one. Uh, Amon Ray, designed by uh, Reiner Knizia and published by Tasty Minstrel Games. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of Quick Looks from The Long View. I want to thank uh, Lloyd once again for uh, joining me for um, some of these episodes, as you often do. We're up to 26 now. So 26 episodes. Yes, we passed the uh, quarter century mark last time. So now we're up to uh, big old episode 26. So thanks for joining again, Lloyd. Oh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And so for Lloyd and myself, I want to say if uh, any of these games sound interesting to you, uh, go check them out. Uh, Go to GameSurplus.com place an order if you do please be sure to tell them the long view sent you and have a great time gaming